Well, let's open our Bibles to John 17. I want to, again, invite you to listen to God speaking to God. A few weeks ago, we entered John 17, which is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And it's in this prayer that we join this this little band of disciples, now eavesdropping on God the Son, praying to God the Father. All of history hinges on the next few hours when the Father will sacrifice His own Son to save sinners. And and John sort sort of cracks open the door to the upper room so that we might listen to what the Son prays to His Father just beforehand. And what should amaze us is not only the multifaceted ways that Jesus' own glory stands out, we should also stand amazed at how many requests Jesus makes on our behalf when we deserve none of them. Because of our sin, we only deserve Jesus' powerful punishment. And yet here we find disciples getting nothing but Jesus' passionate petitions. So let's look at some more of these petitions starting in verse 13. He says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them, given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words. They are a great source of encouragement. And in some ways, they're very uh, convicting because they reveal what your purposes are for us in our union with Christ. You have set us apart not to do whatever we want, but to do what you want us to do. You have set us apart for your holy service. And I pray that we would embrace that more this morning. You would press it more deeply into our lives and our attitudes and our longings in the world. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already covered a couple of Jesus' requests in previous weeks. Uh, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. That's the first major request there in verse 1. The other major request was that of verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, that they may be one even as we are one. And today we look at two more requests. And both of these requests are meant to serve your joy in God. I have no doubt that Jesus' prayer will also challenge us and convict us. But you need to know up front that Jesus isn't speaking to fill our lives with drudgery. He's speaking to fill our lives with His own joy. Look again at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. If there's anybody who knows what true joy is, it is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. His joy is quite literally out of this world. His joy 
never had a beginning. Like other joys in this world, which have a beginning. For all eternity, He has beheld in His Father what is supremely enjoyable, the sheer glory of God's majestic worth. All the pleasures that the psalmist says that are at God's right hand, God's Son has seen them. He has experienced them, tasted of them forever. And never once has His enjoyment of the Father's glory suffered as His relationship with the Father is one that is infinitely intimate. John tells us that He existed in the bosom of the Father. And Matthew in Colossians tells us that the Father delights in all that His Son is and all that His Son does. Jesus' joy remains unhindered. Unlike us, He has no sin clouding His vision of what is supremely enjoyable and nothing lacking in His willingness to fully enjoy what is supremely enjoyable. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, knows true joy and where it is found, where it flourishes. And His purpose in speaking is that His joy might be fulfilled in us. Now, this isn't the first place we've encountered the theme of, of, of joy being completed or, or filled up in, in, in other people in John's Gospel. We can trace this theme of joy back to John the Baptist. Uh, you may remember the scene. John compares Jesus to a bridegroom who has a, a bride. And John himself is the friend of the bridegroom. And he says this. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And then he says this, Therefore this joy of mine is now complete or fulfilled. Same word as in chapter 17. Then he says, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Joy for John the Baptist is the enjoyment of bringing all the Father's purposes to pass in Christ through humble submission to His will. And then we see the same thing unfold a bit later. The Samaritan peoples come to Jesus and Jesus opens the disciples' eyes to the Father's purposes unfolding right before them. The fields are white for harvest, He says. The nations are coming to Me. The time has come for you to gather in the fruit for eternal life. Why? So that sower and reaper might rejoice together. And then he basically tells his disciples, get to work. Joy comes to the disciple who gives himself over to the Father's purposes in Christ through humble submission to his will. The same comes up in chapter 15, verse 11. Joy is related to the disciples bearing fruit for the kingdom of God by humbly submitting themselves to the Father's commandments. And we get the same here in chapter 17. As Jesus is submitting to the Father's will and then telling the disciples to find joy in the same things. To have Jesus' joy in you is, is to enjoy bringing the Father's purposes to pass through humble submission to His will. Just as Jesus Himself has done with His own life. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews 12 tells us. To have Jesus' joy fulfilled in us is to have our own affection won over, our own wills bent toward, our own minds preoccupied with what is supremely valuable, namely the Father's glory in Christ. Decreasing every day in self so that the Father's glory in Jesus increases before the world we serve. 
Jesus speaks, Jesus speaks to, to bring us into that very joy that, that flourishes be, between Him and His Father. He wants us to enjoy the Father's glory and enjoy bringing the Father glory in the same way that He enjoys bringing the Father glory. But there are a couple things necessary for that to happen and which you don't have the power to perform. Some of you are going, yeah, that, that joy sounds great and all, and I'd like to be there, but I'm just not seeing its fullness yet in me. I've still got this problem with indwelling sin that often blinds me to what is supremely enjoyable, namely God and His kingdom. Even when I do find joy in some of the right things, I don't have the stamina to keep making the investment or even the will to enjoy them as I ought for God's sake. And in many ways, you're right. But that's why Jesus prays for you. He prays for the Father to do for you what you can't do for yourself. He wants you to experience the fullness of His joy in the Father's glory. And so He makes two more remarkable requests. Apart from these two things happening for you, you won't experience the fullness of Jesus' joy in the Father's glory. The first request is this. Jesus prays for the Father to keep His disciples from the evil one. To keep His disciples from the evil one. You will will not know Jesus' joy unless God keeps you from the evil one. Read verses 14 and 15. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them... Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but, and here's the request, that you keep them from the evil one. Now notice the link between verse 13 that we just covered and verse 14. Jesus said in verse 13, These things I speak, I speak in the world, that my joy may be fulfilled in them. And now notice, I have given them your word. I speak your word. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Put them together. Jesus speaks the Father's word to fill his people with his joy. And when Jesus' joy fills people, it also changes them. Jesus' joy-giving word transforms people so that they no longer belong to the world. They've been taken out of the world. Remember, the world in John's gospel is the entire moral order that opposes God. When you embrace Jesus' word such that you begin enjoying what he enjoys, you, by definition, no longer belong to the world which does not enjoy what Jesus enjoys. You belong with those who look and live like Jesus. You belong to God, not to the evil world. But that also means the evil world now opposes you. You don't enjoy the evil and fleeting pleasures the world enjoys. Christ's word has opened your eyes to true joy in the Father's glory. And the evil world hates you for it. Because it affects everything that you do. It hates you for it because it also hated Jesus for it. Finding joy in Jesus is actually dangerous in this present life. It will cost you. Just look at the context. Jesus is on the way to the cross. Finding joy in His Father. On His way to the cross. But He knows where true joy is found. It's found with the Father. But all evil is against such joy. Unless we dismiss this evil with some offhand remark about God's sovereign power over all things... Let's be true to all of Scripture's witness. Even God, who rules and controls all things, as we have seen over and over again in John's Gospel. Even God reveals terrible things about the ruler of this world. 
Satan himself. He's a real threat to the believer's joy. Otherwise, what's the point in praying the Father protect us from him? We've seen what happens when Judas goes unprotected. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Our adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he's writing this to Christians. He causes suffering among the brotherhood without, uh, throughout the world. 1 Peter 5.9 His demons disguise themselves behind idols, 1 Corinthians 10.20. His spiritual forces of evil wage war against the church, Ephesians 6.12. He takes advantage of your sinful anger to gain footholds in all your relationships, Ephesians 4.27. He wreaks havoc in the church when people do not forgive each other, 2 Corinthians 2.11. He corrupts minds with false doctrine, 1 Timothy 4.1. He sets snares for young converts when they're allowed into leadership in the church, 1 Timothy 3, 6 and 7. He stands behind the lawlessness in the world that will one day give rise to the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2. He is ferocious. We even get a lament in Revelations 12, 12, Revelation 12, 12. Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's the sovereignty of God over the devil. His time is short, but he's still got wrath on the earth that he's pouring out. And it says that the devil went off to make war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's you, if you're a Christian. The evil one is terrible. If he doesn't oppress you himself, he'll tempt you with everything this world has to offer in order order to destroy your joy being full. That ought to change the way you look at your computer screen. That ought to change the way you think about idolatry and your lack of forgiveness. That goes on for days at times. That ought to wake you up when you see the sin of racism playing out in the streets and in the compassionless comments Christians post on Facebook. It ought to send chills down your spine when you're tempted to let the sun go down on your anger as if you have the ability to finagle your way around the devil's snares. We need to be kept from the evil one for our joy to be complete. Without the son's passionate petitions and the father's powerful protection, we're toast as disciples. We'll give in too easily to the kingdom of darkness. We once lived in it and didn't even know it. We were like a fish swimming in water. We won't see his snares or pick up on his lies. So the son prays. Father, keep them from the evil one. We must be kept if we're to experience the fullness of Jesus' joy. And there is great hope behind Jesus' prayer because the Father always hears the Son's prayers. We can take this to the bank that we will be kept from the evil one. But experiencing this fullness of joy takes more than just a protection outside of us. It also takes a transformation inside of us. And so Jesus prays next that we'd be sanctified for God's mission. Sanctified for God's mission. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. There's there's mission. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, it's pretty common in the church for people to think of, of, of sanctification 
in terms of progressively growing in holiness. This, this progressive growth, growth in holiness that takes place after our justification. And this distinction be, between sanctification as process versus justification as the starting place has been rather helpful. It, it, it debunks the idea that any of our own strivings toward Christ's likeness could serve as the ground of a right standing with God. We will stand or fall on the basis of, of Christ's righteousness alone, His alien righteousness imputed to us by faith alone. But that's not the only way the Bible uses the word sanctification. It's not always used to speak of a process toward holiness. It's also used in a positional sense. It describes what becomes true for all believers at the moment of conversion. They are set apart for holy service to God. That's not to say that they are immediately morally perfected in this life. It's just to say that they were exclusively set apart for God. They now belong to Him and His service. I mean, we get an example of this, for example, in in, uh, 1 Corinthians Uh, Some of the ways Paul starts his letters to the church of God that is in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Yeah, right, when you read the rest of the letter. If you're thinking in terms of progressive holiness. They haven't made it yet. What he's saying is they've been set apart as holy unto God for his service. They now belong to him. And this is the way Jesus is using the word here. We get the same idea in chapter 10, verse 36. The Father consecrates His Son. He sets Him apart for His special mission in the world. And this idea of being set apart for holy service to God stems right from the Old Testament. God Himself is holy. He is unique. He's in a class by Himself. His character is Pure and, and he doesn't tolerate in his presence unholy people. No exceptions. If you fudge on the matter, you're cut off from the people or killed on the spot. If God was to use something or someone, they had to be set apart as holy, set apart exclusively for God. And so, for example, priests had to wear uh, the special garments and the plate of gold on on their heads with, with the engraving, holy to the Lord. And Moses had to anoint them and consecrate them or or sanctify uh, them for service as God's priests. And and this involved the the blood of one bull uh, and a couple of rams being spilt and sprinkled on the altar and applied to the priests themselves that they might be clean and set apart exclusively for God's holy service. The same was even true for the altar itself and the utensils like the pots and the shovels and and the forks and the fire pans. Everything that was to be used in God's presence had to be consecrated, sanctified, set apart exclusively for God. Jesus is praying for the same to happen for His disciples, that the Father would set them apart exclusively for His purposes. Take them out of the world, Father. By your word, take them out and set them apart exclusively for your holy service. But this is how that setting apart takes place. It takes place through the Father's word of revelation and through the Son's work of redemption. These two things sanctify us for mission. The Father's Word of Revelation. Let's look at that first. The Father's Word of Revelation sets us apart for holy service because it is truth. It doesn't just point to truth somewhere outside itself. It is truth. It it reveals to us all we need to know in order to have a right relationship with God. In order to stand before God, not on our own terms, but on His terms. The terms that He reveals in Scripture. There were others 
who attempted to stand before God on their own terms, and they were consumed by His judgment. They didn't give attention to His revelation. And the same will be true for you. If you merely give lip service to God's Word instead of conforming yourself to His truth, you won't be set apart as holy. And He will consume you in His wrath on the last day. You must give attention to His Word. D.A. Carson writes, In practical terms, no one can be sanctified or set apart for the Lord's use without learning to think God's thoughts after Him, without learning to live in conformity with the Word God has graciously given. Now, most immediately, your Word does speak to the specific Word of revelation the Father has given about His Son. It's this Word, this truth about Jesus that sets disciples apart from the rest of the world. But if we consider how much Jesus draws on the Old Testament... And then consider how the Spirit Himself is to come and lead the disciples into all truth. That as they write Spirit-inspired words, we get our New Testament. We can't help but extend this reference to your word out to the entirety of Scripture that bears witness to Jesus and His kingdom. This is the word that sets us apart from the world. When this word lodges into our souls, when it becomes sweeter than honey upon our lips, when it is your meditation day and night, it will not fail to set you apart for God's holy service. It is truth and it is sufficient for sanctification. That was the Father's word of revelation. What about the Son's work of redemption? Look again at verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now this is truly remarkable. Because as I said before, no one unholy was permitted in God's presence. You had to be made holy. What Jesus is saying is that he set himself apart for God's holy service, even if that meant he had to die to make others clean, to make others holy. In chapter 10, verse 36, it says that the Father set Jesus apart as his own. He, he consecrated his son. Here we, say, here we get Jesus saying, I consecrate myself. You don't say that unless you don't have any sin. You see, Jesus' consecration, I mean, Jesus isn't consecrated in quite the same way we are. He has no sin. When he says he consecrates himself, he sets himself apart to do the Father's will, and that, and doing the Father's will means dying, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. To make them clean, to make them holy. Jesus' consecration is a consecration unto death on behalf of the ungodly like us so that we might be set apart for God's holy service. In the same way, the blood of bulls and goats was spilt and sprinkled and applied to consecrate priests and people, so Jesus' blood was spilt and sprinkled and applied to consecrate you and me. What makes His sacrifice superior is that He can actually take away our sins. Totally. No more sacrifices have to be repeated again and again and again as they were because one sacrifice takes away the sins of all God's disciples. Hebrews tells us that the sacrifices under the law were but a shadow of the things to come. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Hebrews 10.4 they, they could never make perfect those who draw near. Draw near to God's presence back in the tabernacle, in the temple. They could never actually perfect those who were drawing near to God. And then comes the Savior who says, out of the joy that he has in doing his Father's will, he says, behold, I have come to do your will. And by that will we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. His death was sufficient to cover all our sins that we might be set apart exclusively for God. And this is how Jesus guarantees the completion of His joy in you. There's nothing, no sin that will any longer hinder you from experiencing all the fullness of Jesus' joy. You won't get to the last day and the Father say, nope, sorry, you got a few more things before this joy is made complete. No, you're in. Enter into the joy of your Master because of Jesus. What He prays the Father do, He seals with His own blood. Protection without, transformation within. Keep them from the evil one, sanctify them for mission. And all of it is sealed with precious blood. And one day, all that was sealed back then for us will break forth into a joy like we've never known or been able to handle before in these non-resurrected bodies when Jesus rolls back the skies to bring the joy of His kingdom in full. Your 70 years of embattled joy as a disciple will be a twinkling of an eye in comparison to the 70 trillion in the perfected enjoyment of the glory of God's presence forever. If He set you apart as holy now, He will keep you as holy forever. And there is blood that speaks to that. So, What should we make of these things? Redeemer, the Father keeping us from the evil one, the Father sanctifying us for His own mission, and all of it to serve the completion of Jesus' joy in us. What are are a few things we should take away? As if all that's not enough. 1st of all, Jesus' prayer reminds us that our sanctification is for mission to the world. Jesus' prayer reminds us that our sanctification, our being set apart, is for mission to the world. We're all vulnerable to reducing Christianity to mere sin management. Yes, we're set apart for God's holy service. We should fight sin with all of our might. But we've got to face the truth. Jesus prays the Father not take us out of the world. He left us in the sinful and rebellious and broken world, facing the onslaughts of the evil one himself. Why are we still here? For mission. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I have sent them into the world. And it's linked with sanctification. True personal holiness will embrace God's mission. We see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 13. If you want to go there with me. Hebrews 13. Actually make a stop in chapter 9 of Hebrews First, this is the writer of Hebrews expanding on what Jesus is already teaching and praying for us here. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So we're talking about the same kinds of things here. Sanctification. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Why? To serve the living God. Mission. Service. Of the living God. Then Hebrews 13. Verse 
Hebrews 13, we see the same thing. uh, Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Why? In order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And what's the writer's conclusion? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Take up your cross and follow me, in other words, is the conclusion. Sanctification is intricately linked with mission. Why? Because sanctification sets us apart for God and God's purposes. And God is a missionary God. And God is doing things in this world. We are to serve Him. This call of the writer of Hebrews, it rat- uh, going outside the camp, it rattles us out of our safe places into a risky, life-threatening one. Outside the camp where carcasses are burned and criminals are crucified. It's a call to leave our isolated holy huddles and die to all our self-calculating decisions that keep us comfortable in our Baptist religious bubbles while the world goes to hell. It's a call to enter the unpredictable for the sake of the gospel's spreading. To raise the banner of Christ amidst dark and unknown territories that make you tremble right now to think about entering. We cannot get comfortable reading Puritans in our lazy boy all the while overlooking the bigger aim of our sanctification. There's no authentic holiness without devotion to God's mission. They go hand in hand. So if that's you, what's your plan to change? How are you going outside the camp to Jesus? What person or people have have you been ignoring while sitting in your isolated places of comfort? How much effort do you put into strategically engaging the people around, around you who you work with? strategically engaging them with the gospel? Do you build your life only around the cultures that you're most comfortable with? While the cultures of people most likely uncomfortably different than you go unreached with the gospel of Christ? Are you requiring lost people to come to you? This is not a come and see religion. This is a go and tell Christ has died. Nations are hearing the gospel. The fields are white for harvest. We go and tell. Or are you taking the message of God's salvation in Christ to them in in their culture? In their culture, as Jesus has modeled for us, entering ours. Our... Are these the things you value? What's it going to take for you to bring the Savior into the lives of those communities you are less comfortable with, who have different views than you politically, who look different than you and do things really different than you, and leave their house ways that make you uncomfortable? What's it going to take to enter the lives of those next door? I think so many of you are already growing in this area. John's gospel has taught us so much as a church. And I've seen the the beginnings of this move in your hearts. And I love it. I love this church because you take the word of God seriously. Keep abounding in the Lord's work to reach the world with the gospel. Sanctification is for mission to the world. But as you do this, remember this as well, mission to the world shouldn't forget sanctification. Mission to the world shouldn't forget sanctification. Yes, God left us in the world on purpose, but our allegiance to His Word will also make us different from the world. Your life should be a living excuse to talk about the gospel with the world. 
You may have heard the, the expression before, in the world, but not of the world. That idea comes from right here in Jesus' prayer. And the danger is that if we forget this, then we end up undermining our mission to the world altogether. We eventually look so much like the world that we have nothing to offer in the gospel. Since our so-called redeemed lives are indistinguishable from theirs. You know, like, like if we have the same aims in life. Uh, we worship the same sports teams. We, we have the same addictions. We, we, we spend just as much money on our hobbies. We waste just as much time on entertainment. We, we seek the same comforts the world celebrates. And, and the lines start getting blurry. And who's the world and who's the church? Or what's actually more popular nowadays. My generation and younger... is to even hide our own ungodly desires in the name of becoming all things to all men. That is to say, we, we, we engage a particular culture of people, not really to reach the people in it, but because we already enjoy that culture anyway, even in unhealthy and idolatrous ways. Listen, Jesus' prayer won't allow us to live that way. And so I would encourage you to think carefully about your pursuits in this world. Yes, our lives will have a great deal of overlap with the world. But never when that overlap compromises our belongingness to God or the offense of the cross. We were set apart for His holy service. And a very practical step that you can take in growing in this area is simply to take God's word, to, 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 to make God's word so much a part of your life that you begin to think God's thoughts after Him. His word is truth. How is His word making you less and less like the world and more and more like Christ? Paul says that if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house. He's referring to God. Ready for every good work. You won't be ready for every good work of God if, if you're not sanctified, if you're not cleansed from these things, if you're not setting yourself apart for God's service by reading the Word. If there are things you need to confess this morning about that, sins that, that, have, that have been hindering you from mission or idols that have been hindering your witness in mission... Find a brother or sister this morning and tell them and ask them to pray for you. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Why would you leave here not taking advantage of that? We're already here together. Stick around. Confess some sins. Pray for one another. It has great power as it is working. Start now. Last one. The Father sanctified you for every day, not just Sunday. Father sanctified you for every day, not just Sunday. Or we might put it a bit differently. He sanctified us for all times, not just sometimes. Not just the times that we find convenient. All the time. One of the easiest things for us to forget is that when God sets us apart for Himself, He does so with a view to everything in our lives, not just to some things. We are His, not just on those special occasions when we might gather with the church or do a bit of outreach with this or that brother or, or sit down to counsel a sister or, or have some much-needed prayer in our closet. Those things are very valuable and good. But we're His all the time. We're God's all the time when we trust Jesus. Not just on those occasions. When He sets us apart exclusively for Himself, the whole of our lives belong to Him and His service. Even what we might call the ordinary and mundane actually become extraordinary moments when you are set apart for God. Every ordinary moment is for His holy service. So, when my daughter wakes me up at midnight 
and then again at two. Right? We're getting real, right? Right now, I can. And then again at five. What's my first thought? I must confess, it is not always, I am sanctified for God's holy service. And I should also confess, the first few sounds that leave my mouth aren't always holy either. Sometimes a long sigh of complaint. But this truth about being set apart for God's service is huge in little moments like those. It totally reorients my thinking and action that I am not my own, that I belong to God in all that I do, even if it is in the middle of the night. So help me, Lord, to magnify your worth, to reflect your patient care for me to my daughter. And the same is true for when you go to your respective vocations. Right? What might it make of a work day to embrace First thing in the morning, I belong exclusively to God. I don't belong to my company, ultimately. I don't belong to myself, ultimately. I don't belong to this world. I belong to God. He set me apart. That changes everything, doesn't it? The workplace is now your mission field. You don't, do, you don't go to work and then you do mission over here on Saturday or something. No, the workplace becomes your mission field. The cranky co-worker needs his eyes open to the riches of God's mercy that he is presumptuously denying and rejecting. The overbearing boss is now the one you pray for before you speak with him. And get his orders. The single mom, two carols over, working two jobs, missing her kids, frantically searching for peace, needs someone to listen to her and give her a drink of Jesus' living water. Right, the various tasks assigned to you in, in management, on the flight line, in the police squad, serving tables, these various tasks aren't just to ensure that you keep your paycheck. They're opportunities to love your neighbor. They're chances for others to see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's part of the mission God has appointed for you from day to day to shock your co-workers with the truth that no trial comes to you apart from your Father's perfect wisdom and love, even when HR calls you in over false accusations from other employees who just don't like that you're a Christian. Happened this week to one of my brothers. He handed out a few books at work that were on vocation and the gospel. Now he's getting called into HR with something that will be attached to his job record about religious, uh, the distribution of religious literature, you know, and trying to convert others. All because he thought it would help their work ethic. Actually benefit the company for them to follow these things. Right? You've got to shock your coworkers that that didn't come, that little memo, these false accusations didn't come against me apart from my Father's perfect wisdom and love. Some of you are teachers. Some of, some of you tutor others after school. Uh, some of you ladies stay home during the day and homeschool your children. The days are sometimes long, exasperating, discouraging. You seek to do all the right things and you find your leadership rejected, your counsel ignored. You don't so much feel like a priest as much as you do a shovel. But priest or shovel, set apart as holy unto the Lord. Set apart for the Lord of the universe. Given access to His holy presence. Sanctified with eternal truth and precious blood. 
omnipotent protection from the evil one in that very moment, guaranteed the fullness of Jesus' joy now and into millennia, there's not a million holidays at the beach with all the refreshments you want that can top that. It's as the psalmist says, a day in the Lord's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Of course, the same truth that we've been rehearsing here might also mean that some of you change vocations. The vocation you have now isn't really for the Lord's purposes. It's for your own purposes that you might pad your wallet a bit more and make your way up the corporate ladder. The American dream is actually setting your agenda rather than God's kingdom. Your vocational pursuits aren't healthy for your marriage. They're running your family ragged and therefore they're certainly not holy according to Ephesians 5. You're not living as one set apart exclusively for God and His purposes. You're living for you. You're living for your own selfish endeavors instead of good endeavors for the Lord. Don't give in to the evil one's snares any longer. Jesus set you apart for God and He speaks for your everlasting joy. Square your life with the way that He prays for you. Square with your life with the way He's even praying for you now. Risen from the dead. Seated in heaven, interceding for you. Before God. If you don't know how to walk out those changes, come to the elders. Uh, maybe involve your care group members. Sit down with, with, a, with a wise sister who isn't afraid to tell you hard things. And welcome their input. Invite their rebuke. We're not in this to look down on each other. We're in this for each other's joy in Christ as we learn to enjoy the Father's glory just as Jesus enjoys the Father's glory.